You know, every week I think you guys can't be more encouraging, and every week you just are. Thank you. Uh, what, a, what an amazing time of worship. You know, just thinking about the words of that song that, that Jesus has given us life, that he restores our broken hearts, and that he's the only one that we praise. He's the one that we worship. And just great is the Lord. I couldn't help but think of Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, In being found in human appearance, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know, that is the gospel message. And this morning, we're going to be covering the account of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's something that we celebrate at Easter. In fact, uh, this is probably, this is, these are probably sermons that you hear at Easter. And because I knew this was going to happen after Easter, we focused on 1 Corinthians 15 this year at Easter. But this is... It's not just something that we celebrate in Easter. This is something we celebrate every Sunday. I mean, we all know, right? That is why the church meets on Sunday, because Jesus rose on Sunday. Now, I want to just um, show you a verse that just talks about the power and the, the importance and the priority of Jesus' resurrection. So this morning, uh, our sermon title is Proof of Life. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 27, verse 57, through chapter 28, verse 15. And then the next time we're in Matthew, we'll be looking at the Great Commission. I am really excited about that, what God's called us to do in light of this. But this is really our foundation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. That is the good news. That's what we preach that is the basis of our salvation. It's why God's put us on earth. But this is what it says. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody where they asked you, if you were to boil down what is the gospel message, what is the good news, what is it that we tell people that they have to believe to be saved? What do you have to know to be saved? What do you have to receive and believe to be saved. And Paul summarizes it right here. And so if you look at verse, oh, I, I think I put that, the gospel on a different slide. Sorry, let me put that up there. Let's look at this for a second. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ, the word Christ means Messiah, that Jesus was the one foretold in the Old Testament that would come and die for the sins of mankind. So for you to be saved, 
And for any person to be saved, they have to know who Jesus is. They have to know who the Messiah is. And the Messiah was defined in the Old Testament, Emmanuel. We hear that at Christmas, and it just means God with us. Jesus was God, one of the members of the Trinity who took on humanity, became a man, lived the perfect life, and died on the cross. And when you think about it, that's what everybody knew about Jesus. They knew who he was. That's what Pilate put um, above the, uh, the cross, that he was the king He was the king of the Jews. That's the Messiah that was foretold. Remember the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross? Says this truly was the son of God. So to be a Christian, you have to know that Jesus was the Christ. That's that he's God and that he's man. And that he died for our sins. Uh, that means we're sinners. We have a problem. We are separated from God. People have to know. I am a sinner and I'm in trouble with God, and Jesus died for sins, which means, what did one of the thieves on the cross say about him? We're dying for our sins, but he's righteous. So we have to know that we are sinners and that Jesus is righteous. And if, and if we don't know that, well, that's the gospel message. It's simple and it's small, but we have to know that we are in trouble and we need Christ and what he did on the cross. In accordance with the scriptures. You know, that is so significant because this means that this is not just something that happened. This was God's plan of salvation. Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve sin, and God says, I'm going to send a Messiah to save the world from their sins. And so we know that this is an expression of God's love. God told us this would happen all through the Old Testament. And what happened? Exactly what God said. And that he was buried you bury people who are dead. Jesus died for us, and he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day. He didn't stay dead. He resurrected. Jesus was raised from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter, we looked at the incredible proof of the resurrection of Jesus. The people who saw him, people that knew him, he was without a doubt resurrected. And we're not going to get into that but we're going to see some more proofs this morning that Jesus was resurrected, and we'll consider the significance of that. You know, there are some people who have say things like, um, you know, being a Christian is better. You're better off being a Christian than anything else because of what that means to your life. In fact, um, a family member that I have that is not a Christian uh, has said to me, I'm really glad that you and Michelle and the grandkids are saved really glad that you guys are Christians because your life is better and the world is better because of people like you. And it actually doesn't matter if it's true, it's just a good thing in life. And that's actually not what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 and he says this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. And, and if it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You know, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just something we believe because it's a tradition or so it kind of makes us feel better to believe it. We believe it because it's true. And if it's not true, then everybody who dedicates their life to following and serving Jesus 
is wasting their life. So you're not better off believing in Christianity if it's not true. You're only better off if it is true. And let me just encourage you, it is true. One of the things that we're going to see is that it is amazingly, overwhelmingly true. And it's not just that it's theologically true, but it is personally transforming. When you come to grips with who Jesus is, when you enter a relationship with him, it will change everything about your life. It'll change how you see today. It'll, it'll, it'll change how you face tragedy, difficulty, sickness. It'll change how you think about the things that are wrong with you. Like that's that whole thing about sin. We're broken. We don't think the way God wants us to think. We don't feel the way God wants us to think. We don't do the things that we're supposed to do. But the resurrection of Jesus changes everything about how you think about those things. And so it is incredibly transforming. And here's one of the most amazing things is that Jesus came to die for you. When you enter a relationship with Jesus and you think about the significance of what that means, um, God purposed to save you. It was in t- his intention. He thought about you and he thought about everything that was wrong with you. And he said, I'm sending, sending my son to die for you. That is just an incredible, amazing thought. It's not like, okay, well, if I'm good enough, maybe God will pick me and save me. No, the Bible says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, other people don't necessarily know everything that's wrong with you. Have you ever wondered, man, if people found this out, would they still like me? God knows everything about you. And not only does he still like you, he sent Jesus to die for you. And if God didn't spare Jesus, um, man, He's given you the most amazing treasure there is. There's nothing he wouldn't give you. There's nobody who can condemn you because you have God. And and I would just say, like, when you think about the gospel, there is nothing more significant that you can have. It is your greatest treasure. Remember all Jesus' parables? Sell everything you have and and buy this, this pearl of great price. You know, all those parables about the value of the kingdom of God. There's nothing in this life that you could have that is more important than a relationship with Jesus than to be saved, to to have the gospel, to be God's child. There is nothing more important than what you could give your kids is to be that person who has a relationship with God. There's nothing more valuable that you could give your friends. You know, this is the content of our life. It is what we do as Christians. And, and the amazing thing about Christianity is God tells us how to be married. He tells us how to have kids. He tells us how to work. He tells us all these things about how to make life work. And there are so many people that as they approach Christianity, they grab all those things. And they forget about the gospel and what it means to actually have a relationship with God. I mean, hey, this is it's not confusing, right? The God who knows everything and who made the entire world knows better how to live life than we do. Like, this is not a confusing, hard concept. But it is amazing how many people and how many churches and how many Sunday school classes, they replace 
the gospel, which results in a faithful life. They get rid of the gospel, and they just talk about having a faithful life. They're just talking about be a better person. That is not the core of why we exist or why we are here. That is a byproduct of what God has put us here on earth for. And that's not an insignificant byproduct, but it is a byproduct. And so this morning we're going to see some incredible things. We're going to see four proofs for the personal life-changing resurrection of Jesus. It's gonna, we're going to see it's proved by the fact that he was buried, by the fact that they stuck a Roman guard to guard the tomb, by the eyewitnesses that were at the scene, and by the implausible cover-up. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 27, verse 15, if you're not there, and let's read this and consider some of these things. Matthew 27, 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered that it be given to him, and Joseph took the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, he laid it in his new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb, and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Just show you a picture of what this tomb might have looked like. This is um, a tomb. It's Herod's family tomb. So most tombs were just like in a cave and they would kind of cut some holes and sometimes they were just like kind of like a small a hole like in the rock and you just kind of scoot a body into it and you'd have this big room and there would be a bunch of holes that would stick a bunch of bodies in it but for rich people um, they would often bury thing people with their possessions and to keep people from robbing the graves uh, they had different tombs and it would put a big rock over the front so nobody could get in so this is the kind of tomb that would have been there in Jesus's day and this is what it would have looked like inside these tombs were dark, they were in caves, and it would have been like a shelf, and they would have taken Jesus' body, and they would have set it on a shelf like that. There's another picture of one. And so Jesus was buried. Now, there's a lot of ideas, a lot of things that people come up with about how the resurrection may have happened. They can't deny that Jesus was seen by over 500 people at a time. All the things lift, listed in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, over, over the course of a month, Jesus is going around and talking to people that he knew very well. And people can't deny that, so they say, well, he must not have really died. I just want you to know that Jesus really died. And we looked at the account of the crucifixion and, and just the physical uh, distress that Jesus went through and being beaten and being hung on the cross. And actually, when they decide to take the bodies off the cross, they go break the legs of the other uh, criminals. And so they smash their legs to kind of hurry their death. But they don't break Jesus' legs because he's already dead. Now, by the way, that, that, that supports Scripture. The Bible says his bones wouldn't be broken, that he was the Passover lamb, and a Passover lamb couldn't have broken legs. And then what's interesting, too, is the Bible also tells us that in Isaiah 53 that we would look on the one who was pierced. And, and what did they do with Jesus? They took a spear 
and they stabbed him in the side, and blood and water poured out of his body. Jesus was dead. Like, that's the things that, that the Romans were good, good at. And one of the things that we find out from the other passages is that when, when they ask for the body of Jesus, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. And he says to the Roman soldier, is he really dead? And the Roman centurion says, yes, he's dead. You want to know what happens to Romans when they say somebody's dead and they're not dead? They get dead. So not only is that centurion going to die, but all the people involved in that are also going to die. When you read the Gospels, there's a time they throw uh, the apostles in prison, and then when the apostles leave, and the Roman soldiers, like an earthquake happens, and an angel frees the apostles, and, and then they come and they say, hey, where are they? And the soldiers go, we don't know. And then it says, and so they led those soldiers off to be executed. You didn't not follow through on what you were told when you were a Roman soldier, and you never let a prisoner escape. Was Jesus dead? Absolutely he was dead. And the idea that, he got, that they thought he was dead, they put him in the tomb, put a rock over it, and it just got cold, and he kind of revived. Um, there, was no, there was no modern hospital in there with an IV, pumping fluids into his body, shocking him to try to get his heart going again. He was in there for three days. Um, so Jesus is in this tomb. He was really dead. And we know that from all the physical evidence, from all the eyewitness testimony. And we know that most of all because God says Jesus was dead. He says that Jesus gave up his spirit and that he died. So we have divine revelation. Now just a thing about the Gospels. We scrutinize the Gospels. We have four different eyewitness accounts, and we scrutinize them and say, okay, this guy told this story, and this one told this story, and this one told this story, and they're all different. And, and what does that difference show? It shows that these are four independent eyewitness testimonies. And they give different details, and they use different clocks as they're giving time, kind of like you might give a measurement in, in English, or you might give it in the metric system. And so you might give like the same measurement, but it would have a different number. And so in all these things, as they're giving times, and th there's all these differences, which, by the way, can be reconciled. And in some places, it's kind of challenging to reconcile them. And do you know why it's important that they all reconcile? It's important that they all reconcile because if God wrote the Bible, there can be no mistakes in it, not one. Because God's perfect and God knows everything. And even though humans remember things incorrectly, even though humans might change something, if God wrote it, it has to be perfect. And so that is the standard that we as Christians who believe in the inspiration of Scripture put on the Bible 100% perfection in every area. But for all the skeptics out there who don't think it's inspired... You know, that standard doesn't exist. There can be mistakes. There could be errors. There's no court in which you would take four witnesses that watched something and say, okay, nothing can be different. It has to be perfect. Everything has to reconcile. You would approach genuine, faithful testimony. And if there were some mistakes or some things that didn't add up, that would be fine because that's just the way life is. 
And so the fact that you have these four independent testimonies that testify of the same thing, this is powerful evidence. And when the skeptics say, well, yeah, these two accounts don't match, to a skeptic you say, yeah, so? Even though they do match, and you can get into all the gymnastics of those things and show that they do match. This is perfect testimony. It is powerful testimony that no one can deny. And it fulfills Scripture. You know, this is the next thing that I want to just consider. Is when you look at this, it says that Joseph, a rich man, um, who was a disciple of Jesus. Let's talk about Joseph for a second. You know, that's a powerful um, fulfillment of Scripture. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked. The wicked is plural. And with a rich man, singular, in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. When people read this in Isaiah, how do you make sense out of he's with the wicked but a rich man? Like, what does that even mean, this prophecy from the Old Testament? What does that even mean? And yet when we look at what happens in the death of Jesus, he was crucified and killed between two criminals, buried where criminals were buried, but in the tomb of a rich man. Perfectly fulfilled prophecy. You know, people could say, oh, well, the Bible says Jesus was going to do this or he was going to do that. And so Jesus studied scripture and then went and did all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. But Jesus didn't pick where he was born and he didn't choose how he was buried. No, this is God identifying who Jesus is without a doubt you know, one of the things that we see is that in Jesus' death, lives were changed. I want to think about Joseph of Arimathea. You know, this is so encouraging when you read this account of Joseph and you think about what this me meant in Joseph's life and what it means for you and me as we think about the significance of this. You know, it says Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. And there are some people who say he wasn't really a disciple because... He was hiding, and true disciples don't hide. They are up front, they're willing to die for Jesus, or they're not disciples. I want to tell you guys a little bit about Joseph of Arimathea. And a lot of times when we're reading Scripture, we kind of are struggling because in many cases, Scripture just reports something and doesn't evaluate it. Like, let's just take Rahab's lie. Oh, Rahab lied. It must have been good for her to lie. Well, was it that she was faithful to God and that it was good for her to lie? Or was she faithful to God, but in her faithfulness, she compromised and she lied and she shouldn't have done that. She shouldn't have lied. But big picture, God obviously accepts and appreciates what she did. People debate that. But in some cases, we don't have to debate it because the Bible actually evaluates it for us. Let me tell you about Joseph of Arimathea. We find out in Mark 15, 43, that he was a respected member of the council. You know the Pharisees and the chief priests that condemned Jesus to death? Joseph was a respected member of that council. Respected. And yet it says here that he was a disciple. It goes on and it says um, in Mark 15, 43, that he himself was looking for the kingdom of God. Remember the spiritual leaders were supposed to be leading people to Jesus? Well, Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for this Messiah, looking for this Messiah, 
and when he saw Jesus, he knew who he was. And it says that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a secret disciple because he was afraid. He was afraid about what does it mean for me as a part of this group and I'm rich and I'm going to be outcast. And, and in this group of all this pressure and all these people, he was pressured to be quiet and to not speak up and to hide. And he was succumbing to that. And when Jesus dies, he takes courage and he steps up and he sacrifices everything he has by identifying with Jesus that they have dedicated themselves to kill. When you l- read the account on, in Luke 5, uh, 23, 50, it says that he was a good and righteous man. Was he a disciple? Yeah. Was he a good and righteous man? Yes, we don't have to wonder. God tells us that. And it says that he did not consent to their decision. When they're, when they're executing Jesus with all the pressure, he doesn't consent. He doesn't vote to kill Jesus along with the rest of them. So he was a good, he was a righteous man, but he wasn't standing up in the way he should have. You ever struggle with your testimony and whether or not you stand up and if you're faithful enough? And have you ever been in a place where you just feel like, oh, man, I just can't speak up and you're feeling that pressure? You know, this is just a reminder that faithful people struggle. And the other thing is it's a reminder that we don't get to heaven because of the things that we do. Oh, man, I I hope I don't give in to the pressure. It's like they're going to kill me, and if I speak up for Christ and I confess him, then God will save me. If I deny him, I'm going to lose my salvation. How we respond is a reflection of salvation. It is not a cause of it. If, If you blow it, if you're struggling, if things are difficult and hard for you, your behavior is not what determines your salvation. It was the death of Christ. It was his work in your life. And I just want you to know that if you're a faithful believer and you know the Lord, you will stand for Christ just like he stood for Christ, just like the apostles stood for Christ. But it doesn't mean that we don't have moments of weakness or that we fail or that we struggle. And you need to know your standing before God is based on Jesus, not you. But we also don't just cross everything out that the Bible says about what is reflected in a true Christian's life. You know, Matthew 7 says, Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons, do miracles in your name? He'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Saying you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith, because you are in the faith unless you fail the test. Not everybody who's religious is saved. But we are not saved by what we do. We're saved by the work of Christ. And I just want to throw something else out there. We find out in the Gospel of John that he wasn't alone. Remember Nicodemus, John chapter 3, uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that Jesus says this to, Nic- you know, to, to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is in John chapter 3, and Jesus is talking to him, and he just tells him that unless you're born again, you can never enter the kingdom of God. And one of the things that it tells us is that Nicodemus went to Jesus at night. And the way that it was phrased, it's not just telling us when he came, it's telling us the kind of time it was. Nicodemus was also hiding. Nicodemus also didn't want anyone to know that he was talking to Jesus. 
And in fact, Nicodemus speaks up one time when they're going to condemn Jesus. And Nicodemus says, hey, don't we have to hear from somebody before we condemn him? And the whole council says to uh, Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? No prophets from Galilee. So like they turn on him. Well, guess who else shows up to help Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus? It's Nicodemus. See that in John. Um, as a Christian, I'm going to leave this topic quickly, but I want to just say this. As a Christian, you should expect to suffer. You should be willing to stand alone for Christ. And, um, and, and, that's, and I think that's one of our big struggles is we, we want other people, we want the approval of people with current doctrinal issues, with how, what's God's design for the role of men and women. That is not popular today. And you have all kinds of religious leaders that sit around and go, well, what does everybody else think? And they just do whatever anybody else tells them to do. Any kinds of doctrinal issues that are, that are challenging in the church and in different places, and people just want to be accepted and welcomed. As a Christian, we stand alone, and if we're the only one that stands with Christ, if we alone are faithful to Christ, then that's what we do. And it doesn't matter what anybody else does or says. You should expect persecution. You should desire persecution. You should decide in advance. If I have a moment to be rejected by everyone, I'm going to stand with what God says. I was with a group of friends, and they were actually debating the whole role of women. And one of the guys says, I can't get away from what Scripture says, but I wish it wasn't true, and I don't like it. Well, why? Because it caused personal rejection. When it comes to the gospel, we don't step away from what God says because we're going to get rejected. And in, as a Christian, uh, the Bible actually promises everyone who desires to live godly will be persecuted. That is a promise. Philippians says, God has granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name's sake. Suffering, rejection, is a gift. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 talks about how he desires that, that he could have the fellowship of Christ and the fellowship of suffering. He desires it. He wants to be faithful. And as Christians, we're trying to figure out how do we do and say things and not make anybody mad and not lose any friends. And sometimes we label that as, I don't want to misrepresent Christ. I don't want people to be mad at Jesus. Um, the way that you represent Christ well is you tell the truth and you do it in love. And how they respond is up to them. But it's your job to do and say what's right. Often we think way too highly of ourselves and our role. And that's what was happening with, Nick, with Joseph of Arimathea. But the day Jesus died, that quit happening. Let's look at the second thing. Jesus is the proof is that he was guarded. Let's look at Matthew 27, 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I'll rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. 
And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Okay, so the Pharisees are doing this so that nothing fake can happen. And guess what? Nothing fake happened. They stuck these 16 Roman guards outside the the tomb, and they sealed it, which communicated, first of all, if that tomb had been sealed, had been broken, everybody would know. And if anybody broke that, that seal, they would be killed. So, I mean, it was sealed. It was made secure. They stuck Roman soldiers there. And um, just kind of to throw something out there, fishermen, a few fishermen are no match for 16 Roman soldiers. It was secure. And there is no way anybody got in there to steal the body. And that evidence is undeniable. Could you imagine if they didn't post a guard? Well, you could come up with all kinds of stories. No, they stuck 16 Roman guards there. But we're going to come back to this in a minute when we consider the deception. But that tomb was secure, and that proves the resurrection of Jesus. It's also proved by the eyewitnesses at the scene. Let's look at Matthew 28. Verse 1, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. Have I not told you? So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear, with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up, they took a hold of his feet, they worshiped him. And then Jesus says, don't be afraid, go tell my brothers, go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You know, these eyewitnesses, when you think about the significance of what happened, The whole idea that the disciples made this up and went there, they were discouraged and disappointed, and they were fearful. They were crushed. Uh, It's like on on, uh, Palm Sunday, they're riding into town. They think Jesus is going to come defeat the Romans by himself. Look at all these people cheering for Jesus. All the times they tried to kill him, and they couldn't kill him. Look at all the miracles. He raised people from the dead. He, He caused blind people to see. Jesus cleansed the temple. He can do anything. And they had so much trust and confidence in him. And then they watched him get crucified, and they were scattered, and they were discouraged, and their faith was shaken. And one of the things that's awesome is who loved Jesus and was sitting there at the cross, the women in his ministry, the women who loved him, who cared about him, one of the women who had seven demons cast out of her, they're there. Now, we also know in John 19 that the Apostle John was there because, that, because God also told him to take care of his mom. And then after they take Jesus off the cross and they take him to the tomb, who's there? It's all the women that were involved in his ministry along with Joseph and Nicodemus. 
And then after the Sabbath, when they're going back, who goes? It's the women. Where are the disciples? Who knows? But the women are there. Ever think about how significant that is? It's significant because on the way to the tomb, they're thinking, how do we get the tomb open? We're not going to be able to roll away the stone. Like that's their conversation on the way. Did these women show up and kill all the Roman soldiers to scare them away or that kind of a thing? I don't think so. Maybe women walk lighter than men, and so they were able to sneak up and roll the stone away without waking up any sleeping guards. Like the, the story behind this, these women show up, and they are a witness. They see an angel. They go into the tomb. They see the empty tomb. Where's the body of Jesus? You want to disprove the resurrection, produce the body. A tomb's empty. Not only that, there was no battle scene there. The face cloth is folded up nice. Like the, like. And so these ladies go, and there's an angel there who tells them what happened and then says, go tell the disciples. And then they see Jesus themselves, and they worship him. These ladies knew Jesus. Were they confused? Did they get him mixed up with someone else? They saw Jesus, and then they go tell the disciples, who supposedly came up with this plot. And when they tell the disciples, what happens? As we read the other gospel stories, the disciples didn't believe them. And Peter and John take off running to the tomb to say, is that really true? And Thomas says, I don't care. Even after everybody would seen him and they tell Thomas, Thomas is like, I'm not believing it until I can touch his, his nail holes and put my hand in the side where they pierced him. I'm not believing it until I see. I've been disappointed, disappointed once. I'm not going to be disappointed again. There, there was no plot. Um, and imagine the first people carrying the message significant these ladies in God's ministry you don't disregard what God says about people's purpose and God's design but that in no way sets anybody to the side every Christian man or woman should use every talent every gift every ability to minister fully the way God intends now let's consider this is our last point this morning let's consider the implausible cover-up. Look at verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble so they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Have you ever heard a story that just didn't add up? You know, as a kid, I learned to lie really well. And I just want you guys to know my kids were not near as good a liars as I was. Uh, my dad, like, did so much research. So, like, if I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be, I had to take into account everything he might figure out. So I would have to think, okay, so... In this neighborhood back behind the street where I was, and I wasn't supposed to be, it was about 1230, I was walking down the street, and I do remember that there was a guy mowing his lawn. And that guy might have seen me, and my dad might go knock on his door and ask him, so i got to tell him whatever lie I come up with has to include the fact that I walked down the street and this guy saw me, so how can I tell this story? My dad was like a researcher. I'm telling you, I told my dad stuff, he'd go check. He'd go knock on neighbor's doors. Really? You were there at what time where? Doing what? 
And so I had to count all these variables when I was lying. My kids never did that. Um, they a lot of times told me stories that just didn't make any sense. You ever hear a story and you just go, that's not true. This story is not true. And if it's all you heard, you'd know it's not true. Um, the women were the first ones on the scene. And there's Roman guards. It wasn't the disciples who were first. It was the women who showed up to the empty tomb. This whole thing was not driven by the disciples. These guards were invincible compared to the disciples. You could have stuck one Roman guard. He would have killed all the disciples. Um, there were no, no dead guards. Okay, let's just say that they went there to go take this. If Jesus' body gets taken, all those guards are going to be executed. Do you think they're just going to like sleep or just let him do it? Where are the dead guards that the disciples killed in order to get the body? Where are the two dead disciples and the 16 dead guards if the other disciples overpowered? That Where's all the dead bodies from this battle that took place? Um, and the penalty. A guard shows up and tells you, yeah, we fell asleep and um, they stole the body while we were sleeping. How are they telling you that? They're dead, because that's what happens to people who sleep and get a body stolen. Also, if that happened, why would you tell anybody? Um, uh, I took a shot at the president yesterday while he was in the White House. Really? Did you get arrested? No. No, I didn't get arrested. Um, and you're telling everybody that? Why would you do that? Like, nothing about this story makes any sense. How do you sleep through this? And if they did sleep through it, how'd they know it was the disciples who stole the body? And why was, like, you're trying to sneak the body out, you're going to fold up the face cloth? Like, nothing about this story makes any sense, which is additional proof that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, as we wrap it up this morning, I want to draw some attention again to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Because these guards go back and they tell the chief priests and Pharisees everything that happened. What'd they tell them? They said, we were on guard and an angel came and there was an earthquake and Jesus rose from the dead. And what are all the things that the Pharisees, they were afraid. He said he was going to do that. Remember they said, give us a sign. And they, and, or they said to him, give us a sign. And he said, you get no sign except the sign of Jonah, that Jesus was going to be buried and he was going to be raised from the dead. That's their sign. That's why they set these guards out there. And these Pharisees, they, they said to Jesus many times, show us a sign and then we'll believe in you. Except why did they want to kill him? They wanted to kill him because he healed people on the Sabbath. Lame people, he told them to get up and walk. People who had diseases, he cast demons out of them. He physically healed blind people. They saw that and said, not, you didn't heal anybody, and you didn't, uh, you know, restore the lame, and you didn't heal the sick. That's not what they said. They said, you did it on the Sabbath. And then when they raised Lazarus from the dead, and everybody sees Lazarus up, and everybody's believing because of Lazarus, they say, mm, everybody's believing because of Lazarus. Let's kill Lazarus and let's kill Jesus. Um, did they need a sign? 
And when these people go back and tell them Jesus rose from the dead, do they believe? I just want to ask you guys a question. Um, How powerful is evidence? Evidence is not unimportant. But how convincing is evidence? For the Pharisees and the chief priests, not at all. How can you be that hard-hearted? My friends, that is the sinfulness. Never underestimate the power of a sinful heart. People are not driven by evidence. You don't lay evidence in front of people, and people are not morally neutral seeking the truth. No, people are hard-hearted against God. It does not matter what you show them. They will not believe it. That doesn't mean evidence is not significant and that we shouldn't use it. Yes, we should. But what makes the difference is the condition of someone's heart. Remember Jesus talking about the sowing of the seed? Some fell on the hard soil, the road soil, the rocky soil, some on good soil. By the way, that's why we pray for people that God will open their heart. Because without God's work in their heart, people don't believe. These people were so hard-hearted. When we look at the Bible, it explains the Pharisees, and this is the challenge for you. Are you like the Pharisees? We are not, most of us, we are not like the Pharisees. God's opened our heart, and we believe. And when we preach, when we present the gospel, what do we focus on? Truth and love. We tell this story. We proclaim it. The disciples didn't believe the women when they came and gave them the message. Can you imagine if the women would have said, oh, man, you know, the disciples, they're not going to believe this if we tell them. I mean, they saw Jesus get crucified and all that stuff. They're not going to believe him. How can we change this to make it acceptable to them? Isn't it amazing how many churches and how many Christians think, ah, I don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel, and so they change the message Because they think if they tell the story in a different way, it'll reach someone. See, the Bible tells us this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Don't underestimate the power of a hard heart, and don't underestimate the power of the gospel, the truth, this story, God's message. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Did the signs help them? No. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God. And the wisdom of God. See, this is what happens. You see somebody that's hard-hearted, but God's working in their heart. He's softening their heart. He wants to draw them. And if you go preach the truth, you think it'll make them mad. But when they hear it, they get saved because God's working on their heart. And they go, that's God's message and that's the truth. And that's what I need. But we have so many people that we disguise the gospel because we're afraid somebody won't accept it. I just want you to know a lot of people won't accept it. They didn't accept Jesus. They didn't accept the apostles. And if you're faithful, they won't accept you either. 
But that's not our job. It's not our job to change the message or go, God, um, the way you said this isn't that good, but I got a better way to do this. It's just our job to say, God, what did you say? I'm going to faithfully deliver it, and you love people, and you want me to love people, and so I'm going to deliver it in a faithful, loving way. And if somebody's offended, it's not going to be because I'm prideful, arrogant, or obnoxious. It's going to be because they don't want you. And uh, this is how Paul says that. Um, he says it this way, 2 Corinthians 4.2, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, that's our own wisdom, or tamper with God's word, that's to change anything about it. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So for all of us, we trust Jesus. We trust the resurrection. And that's the message that we proclaim and that provides such powerful stability in a Christian life. Hey, we're, at the, we're about the gospel and we're about salvation. We're not about good jobs and good marriages and families that get along and all those other logistics in life. We are about the gospel. But when we faithfully follow Christ and obey everything he says, that does result in blessing and persecution, which is also a blessing. Why? Because God's smarter than us. He's smarter than us in the gospel, and he's smarter than us in how we live life. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word, and Lord, that you came and you died, and the resurrection it is undeniable. And Lord, it's undeniable, and we see how you use weak people. It is the basis of our salvation, not our own performance. God, I ask that you would help us to love you, to be loyal to you, to be willing to stand alone. And Lord, I also ask that you would allow us to never let another person stand alone. Lord, that as others are speaking up for you and sharing the gospel, that we would stand up right next to them and we would be willing to suffer and be persecuted and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I thank you that our standing before you is not based on our strength and faithfulness. It is based on your work on the cross. Lord, we thank you for that. And and on your resurrection, Lord, thank you for what you've done in saving us in your name. Amen.